Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Bonus episode this week. Uh, so this is a double episode week. This is what we're working towards, uh, the model we're working towards when it comes to the drive we're currently doing on the Patreon page. Patreon is basically a crowdfunding way to support this podcast. This podcast is mostly listener supported. The reason it comes out is because you guys contribute to it and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash philosophy, W-I-L. O-S-O-P-H-Y. And uh, we're doing a little drive at the moment to try to get subscribers up to $5,000 a month. Now, if we can get to that magical $5,000 mark, we can afford to do two episodes per week. And what that will be is a new episode, like Wednesday's episode was a new guest with uh, Bella Green. Um, really fascinating episode if you haven't heard that one yet. And then I, later in the week, I will do a Return guest. Uh, people have seemed to really like these catch up with previous guests that we've been doing during the pandemic lockdown. So that is the model we are working towards, and we have budgeted that we need five thousand dollars a month to be able to do that. A lot of the costs, obviously, James Fosdyke, who does all the original artwork for the episodes, but also to the legendary podcast Mike, who is working uh, above and beyond at the moment, because obviously most of these conversations are recorded over technology. And sometimes we don't have the right technology or the technology goes wrong. And that basically means that Podcast Mike works even harder to make sure that you can hear an episode. And today, this is definitely an example of that. Uh, Nelly and I got together to do the podcast. We discovered we didn't really have the right equipment to do the podcast. Uh, there were some technical issues. We decided, seeing we've already, you know, we're up on a Sunday morning to have a chat. Let's just have a chat. And we started rolling on the chat. But it was just going to be a little catch-up chat between the two of us. And it turned into an episode of the podcast. I'm not even sure I say, you know, uh, hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson in this one. I think we just start chatting and eventually somewhere in our chat it becomes a podcast. But uh, Podcast Mike has done an amazing job. It's not to the, um, you know, usual level of audio that we like. And I'm sorry, we're going to have to say that a few times. I think, uh, you know, in the next few months as we still work out how the world works and everybody works out how technology works. And sometimes it'll be really great sound and sometimes... Uh, podcast Mike will have to work a little harder to make sure that the audio is okay. But he he guarantees me that it is okay and this conversation is well worth the listen. So Nellie Thomas, if you don't know her, uh, check out her children's books, check out her podcast. She has a podcast of her own at the moment, which is really excellent, which I will be doing uh, coming up. But there's some brilliant guests on that already. So I would recommend just Googling Nellie Thomas, look at all the stuff she's doing, follow her. Uh, get on board with her, engage with her. She's an absolute legend, Nelly, and uh, it's always a great pleasure just to have a conversation with her. And this is a conversation we were having that you guys get to listen into. Uh, thank you very much to everybody. I hope you're doing okay. Um, this has been a tough week, I think, for a lot of people. So, um, you know, be kind to each other, help out other people when you can, and I uh, hope you really enjoy this chat with Nelly Thomas. <laughs> Have you, is this ISO hair? <laughs> this is definitely ISO hair. 
I was going to have a um, shower before I spoke to you this morning. That was my big plan. I got up quite early, but then we had... uh, So Amy was in bed. Sunday morning is like when I try to do a bit of recording. So I get it out of the way before midday and then we can do some stuff with our day. So I've got tofot with charlie after this and you know so i got up early and normally she'll have a bit of a sleep in but i got a phone call from her from the bedroom uh, a few minutes after i'd been awake and because i'd let the cat out and our cat now that we're living in the country it has decided that she's gone from being you know a city cat with like you know three houses to explore to this cat that now is down in the bottom paddock and bringing in so the other day she brought she's brought it she's brought in mice and then today she brought in a rat. Like oh a real, no! Like a proper like she's a she's a good hunter. I will say this. And, oh no, and, they're uh, hunting machines. So she's and she loves it. She's like because she's just got all this property and all these like plants and everything to ex- like explore. So she just like does laps of the entire property and just like hunts all day. So then well, what happened was uh, we. Um, decided to watch Donald Trump doing his 4th of July oh, no. presentation. Why? We have, well, Amy is quite obsessed with Donald Trump and not in a, a healthy way. Like, in a, he completely infuriates. Well, I've managed to not be obsessed by him. So when we were doing the radio, when I stopped doing the radio, there was a few comments from people, Trump supporters going, oh, at last, you know, he'll stop just bagging Donald Trump. And the funny thing is, in the time we were doing the radio, like Trump stories would come up every day and we would only do probably one in every 20 like of the actual things we could talk about because I'm just so bored about talking about Donald Trump. And I think also it feeds into that idea of you can never pin him down on one thing because you're so caught up in the, you know, the absolute, you know, bananas way that he looks at the world that it's just, that's why it's worked for him. You know, like there are so many individual incidents that would have taken down any other president, but because he has like three of them a day, then there's just this mounting absurdity. He reminds me of how um, abusive partners operate. You know, it's like this. there's so much, um, I mean, gaslighting is such an overused term, but there's so much and there's so many incidents and there's so, it's so insane that you almost can't help but be drawn into the insanity of it. And all of a sudden you've lost your compass. And I think that's exactly what it is. And so I tried not to do that. But because we've been in isolation together and she's obsessed, and I mean, probably obsessed, like, you know, threatening his life on Instagram and stuff like that, (laughs) which in the old days, in the old days, I would have been like, oh, honey, you probably shouldn't threaten to, like, kill the president on social media. But but these days I'm like, well, if we could never get back into America, it would probably be a positive at this stage. (laughs) So... And by the time we do, uh, he'll probably be long gone, hopefully, fingers crossed. Well, that's the point, right? Like, you don't want to go there while he's still in charge. And you hope that when he's not not still in charge, the fact that you used to threaten his life on social media is probably going to get you to the front of the queue. Maybe an asset. Did you see that um, all those uh, Bush staffers have been fundraising for Biden? I mean, that doesn't surprise me because, A, Biden's politics are pretty close to Bush's politics anyway. <laughs> and secondly... But to me, that's a measure, given how tribal they are. That is a measure of how fucking off the Richter Trump is. Like, serious. I mean, we know this. We know this. But you don't get Republicans supporting any Democrat 
without it being extreme. And you look at what's going on in that country. And so this is uh, Amy now gets up in the morning and she turns on CNN. And, you know, we watch the first couple of hours of the news reports out of America around you know, coronavirus and around whatever Donald Trump's been up to recently. And so today, the morning we're having this chat is the 4th of July, American Independence Day, as they call it. Uh, my dad's my dad's birthday, as I like to call it. But, uh, yes. Uh, but uh, so he's trying to have this big celebration in Washington, D.C. And you can tell now, if you'd asked me three months ago, Will Donald Trump win the next election? I was pretty confident that Trump was still going to win the next election. Whereas now, I think the coronavirus, I mean, the fact that it's going to, you know, there's going to be 200,000 dead Americans by the time the election comes around and he has just handled this so terribly. And you can now see in the diminishing size of his crowds at rallies and at these sort of events that people are not paying any real attention to him anymore. So I think Biden probably will win, but you'll probably just win because Trump has just been so absolutely terrible that people just won't oh, be able to vote for him. Biden will do a Bradbury, just like hang in there, just wait until Trump falls over, basically. But I think at this point, I mean, you know, I'm no Biden fan, but fuck me, I'd take him. I'd take him over Trump. I think any any sane person would, to be frank. Well, that's the problem, isn't it, in a way, is like... He might be only the next best option. There might be so many better options than Biden, but at this stage, next best option is probably going to be good enough to get him to be president, I think. Mm, Absolutely. Hey, I have to tell you, because I loved changing topic completely. I loved your Kurt Fernley episode. Oh, my God. I love. But when I was getting ready for today, I got all self-conscious about the size of my coffee cup. (laughs) (laughs) discussion you had with him sipping on his little I assume short black for an hour I'm like oh I need to get a big coffee cup (laughs) we we need to be in solidarity on the decent size coffee cups you've got an appropriately sized coffee cup uh, for the morning so okay so this is what I was running you through my morning so I was going to get up and have a shower yeah do my hair for you Um, but Instead, had to deal with the the dead rat. That was the first situation I had to deal with this morning. And then we were watching a bit of Trump at his very empty rally, and that was quite entertaining. And then we had some breakfast, and there was a wallaby in the um, front paddock. So for about 20 minutes, we just stared at a wallaby <laughs> bouncing around a paddock. So that's pretty much the speed of our lives at the moment. Like, oh, how is it? Is it, is oh, it working? It's the best. Well, I, I love it. Like, I probably love it too much. Amy went away for, like, three days to visit a girlfriend who's a single mother and, you know, just went to, you know, give her a hand for a few days and, you know, take some pressure off. And, you know, because a single mother in, in of itself, you know, pretty hard thing to do when your kid's, you know, two, three. Um, but also... Yeah, in the middle of a pandemic while she's still working and having to balance everything else. So Amy, you know, went to, that was the first three days we'd spent apart for the last three months. You know, it's pretty much just been the two of us here in isolation. And we only have one car, one operational car at the moment. And Amy was like, are you fine if I take the car? And I was like, yep. Yeah. The idea (laughs) that I am just stuck here like not even able to leave for yeah. three days. The nearest like town I could walk to is like, you know, a good hour walk from where I am. I'm just like, no, I'm fine. I'm not going to go anywhere else. Let me with some supplies. 
I'm fine. And the great thing was, started to eat some of our isolation food because I hadn't been to the supermarket for a little while. I suddenly got to those supplies that we'd eagerly hoarded when it all the shit went down in the first place. So you got a few frozen that, veggies, frozen veggies, frozen meals, mate. And I've also been baking a lot. So you know, when there's ingredients in the cupboard, I'm now just like looking at things and you know, googling recipes, going, okay, I've got blueberries. I've got lemons. I've definitely got some flour and some sugar. What is it that I can make? <laughs> Let's go. I noticed yeah. like the early on the when the isolation when we were all panicking a bit about, you know, whether or not there'd be enough food and I started to be much more conscious about using everything and I found myself googling recipes for potato peelings and when this shit's gone too far like pull back. You're not in the fucking depression era. Like you really don't have to get the scraps out of the chicken bin and try and make them into a meal. There is something about that, though, that I... I mean, that was that that was partly what we were doing to a certain extent anyway. You know, having a tree change, the whole idea of it is to get a bit more connected with nature. And I'm on a property that has... You know, it doesn't have things like town water, you know. So we've got tank water. You know, uh, everything hopefully is going back into the compost. It's a... The bins only get collected every fortnight rather than every week. So you're a little bit more conscious about you know, how much rubbish that you're coming up with. And I noticed, it's funny, we've only been here three months. We moved April 1st. I, when we first got here, the bins were both full before the Tuesday. Admittedly, probably we had some, you know, packing rubbish and all those sort of things as well. But I have noticed that it now... So that it would get to the point where you'd be a few days out from bin night and you'd start to go, oh, shit, what, you know, where are we going to put this rubbish? And now, even within three months, you know, we're talking putting the bin out sort of only two-thirds full after two weeks. So even that process of going, how much waste were we creating? And then how much of this waste could we just reuse and sometimes when I say reuse it's as simple as okay well that packing paper or whatever will be good for lighting the fire later tonight so some of it's you know or it can go straight into the compost or we can lay it under the garden bed and thinking about those things how you can use every bit of the fruit and vegetable or how you can use every bit of the you know the products that you've been given I think is something that we need to think about regardless. So the idea of Googling potato peel recipes, I think is actually, I kind of get. Oh yeah, and I cooked them and we ate them and they were great. But (laughs) (laughs) like, of course, these are things we should be doing. But the thing that I reckon is that it's shown us, like these things don't just come because of the pandemic. I think the pandemic has given a lot of people time that they didn't have before and therefore mental space and time to think about, well, how can I reduce my rubbish? In fact, I'm home so much, I notice how much rubbish I produce. If you're at the office or your kids are at school or whatever, a lot of the waste that they're producing is being dropped off at other sites. Whereas I notice, particularly when we're in full lockdown and the kids were home from school and, you know, there's four of us in the house, two people working, we had a shitload of rubbish and I don't think our waste had increased it's just that it was at home. So, you know, you could see very consciously how much waste you're producing and then had time to think about, well, what would I do about it? 
in the same way that you go, well, I've got time to think about what will I do with potato peelings or with frozen veggies, whereas we live so fast and so frantic that I don't think it's necessarily always a lack of will to do those things. It's like there's just no headspace and no time. I think what you've said there is absolutely right. I can't help but believe that the most important ingredient in us fixing this world. And it's like, I mean, regardless if this goes up as a regular episode or a bonus episode or whatever it is that we've suddenly started recording, because we we were going to postpone this and then we thought, let's just have a chat anyway. And now we're recording it. And now it's, and now, well, now it's got very interesting is my point. So like we are going to use this because I think that what you're saying is absolutely right. Last time we spoke, we talked about the idea of, and you brought this up and I've parroted it to every single person that I've spoken to since, which was we're living wrong. And you were absolutely right. You were just three months early on really, you know, us all being thrust into, you know, this new situation where we'd have to constantly re-examine, you know, the very nature of our existence Yeah, from a top to bottom thing. You know, the idea of you yeah, having a job, if you do have a job, what that job means, you know, relying on the system, relying on a safety net. Do we have appropriate safety nets? Does the, What is the system for in the, you know, like because we've suddenly gone, well, we're reminded of the fact that government and all these sort of things are really a system that we set up to look after us when things go wrong. And that's there main function and we're connected to that idea the governments themselves to a certain extent seem to be connected to that idea you know their day-to-day is about whether you agree with it or not what states they'll lock down what rules you can have how many people are out and about and they're all because they're trying to you know look after their citizenry in whichever way they deem is appropriate depending on who they are but they're really connected to that idea of this is what we have a government for in the first place Examining the idea of work, examining the idea of our personal relationships, examining the idea of, you know, the amount of waste we use, where our products come from, what is available and what is not available, what we could use if those things aren't available, how we react to each other in our communities, because a lot of it's been about, can you pass this thing over the back fence or can you look after that elderly person on the end of your street? Or maybe the opposite, our entire community is now locked down, so we have to look after each other inside this lockdown. All of that has been forced by, predominantly to me, time. What you've just said, the idea that we have time to think about these things. It's not that people don't want to bake a cake for their neighbours ordinarily. This has shown that we love doing that sort of stuff, but we don't have time, so we don't do it. It's not like people don't want to compost their stuff at home. They just don't have time to learn how to do it, to set it up, you know, to put those things in place. We are so incredibly time poor as a humanity and So much of it has to do with that idea of us being constantly told that we need to have more, right? You need to have this expensive thing. You need to buy this. You need to buy this time-saving device. This is the great irony. I know this has been a very long uh, run-up from me, but you've stumbled onto something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think it is so true because the absolute horrible conundrum. Well, we have time, but we don't ordinarily have time And then most of the things that we end up buying are things that we are conned into believing will give us more time. That's so we we are increasingly busier to buy time saving things 
Whereas now we've been given all this time and realize, oh, hang on, what I actually was poor of was literally time. And I could have just got more of that by stopping buying those time saving things and actually working less and, and, you know, having some time. I think it's very fascinating that idea of the busyness of the world. And so this is okay. So that's my run up to this question, because I think about this a lot. I've pushed, I've pushed off the boundary line to get to this question. But when we go back into the new world, the new normal, let's say, and we have to decide what the world looks like after all this, how do we take back with it the idea of not being as busy as we were? Because I think that the major pressure from society from government, from employers, from, you know, the economy will be that everyone should be busier than ever because we've got to catch up for what we miss. Oh, no, I I couldn't agree more. In fact, I keep getting asked. I I feel like I want to have an optimistic answer. Like I feel like I want to say, oh, you know what, we've all had this period of reflection and everyone will realise like how important the welfare safety net is you know, how important it is to see government as a, as a place, as an opportunity to do good and look after citizens, to look after your neighbour, all the things that you have uh, named. But I noticed in Victoria, we went in, we came a little bit out of restrictions. They were eased. And almost the minute that that happened, a lot of that stuff started to drop away. You know, like you could, you could, you could see it. I could see it in my own existence. I could feel it in the ether that it was, there was an attitude of yay, back to normal. Even when normal had been destructive. So I I think the short answer is, I think some things it's, it's a bit like any big life change. You know, you hear about people getting cancer and, you know, then suddenly having a new appreciation of life and realising the important things and making big changes. And other people don't do that. And I think that that will be the same with corona. Some people will will have um, insightful realisations and make changes and others will be like, oh, thank fuck, we're back to how things used to be. And where all that lands and what the mix in terms of numbers will be very interesting to see. I think one thing's for sure, which I think is a positive thing, I don't think we will, in our lifetime anyway, take Medicare for granted. I feel like we were moving toward a much more privatised health system. And one thing has been really clear through corona, and that is that Medicare and having universal health care, albeit you know, not perfect, but pretty great, has been a huge part of the reason that we haven't got thousands and thousands of people dying. So a kind of reminder of how important things like that are has been timely. Um, But it's funny, you know, you say with time, like when, so when I first, to go back for people who haven't heard the previous episode, like I'm feeling all powerful at the moment because I feel like last time we spoke I said I'm I'm going into retirement and I didn't know I'd take you all with me <laughs> you know like, it's sort of like <laughs> this is me what November last year I think that the 
the, the initially my reaction which I've seen in Corona as well. It's sort of like I'm looking in the rear view mirror, like I'm just a couple of months ahead, you know, and my initial reaction was go, try and be a little bit Buddhist about it. I mean, I am an atheist. I'm not a believer, but, you know, a good idea doesn't care where it came from. So I'm happy to look in all traditions. Try and sit with it. Don't fight it. You know, don't shout into the wind. Just accept this is what is. But... As the months have gone by, I've said to myself, yeah, but that's just not how humans work. None of us can sit in existential dread for this. This is why we all avoid our shit. This is why people overwork. This is why people travel all the time or smoke or drink or, you know, all the different things that human beings do. Maybe we just can't do it. I mean, that's a big idea. Well, as you know, and you know probably better than some of, even some of the listeners to this show know, because sometimes my life and my decision-making process is in advance of the things that I can talk about on this show, because sometimes, you know, there are elements of my life that haven't heard about the decisions that I've made yet. And if I announce them on my podcast, that would make my life awkward. But I had spoken personally to you about my plans to, you know, have a bit of a quieter life and to move out of the city and to reassess how it was that I was living my life. And so in many ways, I feel a little like you in that, well, this is what I was going for anyway. This is just fast forwarded it. This has just meant that instead of me, you know, moving to a new place and then being there for two of the three months, I've moved to a new place and I've been here for pretty much every moment of three months. And the good news is I love it. That's the good news. You know, the good news is, i got to be honest with you, I want people to be able to get better and I have a huge financial imperative for people to get better because I have, you know, financial commitments that I just simply can't honour at the moment because I'm unemployed and luckily the banks put the mortgages and stuff on hold for a little while, but that comes back soon and when that comes back, I'm there's a part of me that's genuinely terrified about the fact that I won't be able to, you know, pay that money and and whatever the life implications of all that will be. So there's that sort of overwhelming dread headline, but I've been surprised at how easily I've been able to put that out of my mind just because in a day-to-day sense, I'm very happy with where I am and what I'm doing. And I think part of it is a reaction to, I have been going flat out for 25 years. And the truth is that I was never going to take this type of break. I was never really going to have it be this quiet and this slow. And I mean, this would be the first, I was talking to a friend of mine just a couple of days ago. I reckon this would be the first time in 15 years that I have not got on a plane at least once every fortnight. Like probably the first time in 15 years and it's been three months or something. It's been three months since I've done a stand-up show. Like all those things that are just such regular parts of my life and quite draining parts of my life. You know what it's like traveling and doing shows. They can be quite physically and mentally draining. That's all suddenly just gone away. Mm. Like, you know, mm, yeah. just, but not just gone away because I chose not to do it, which that's the thing I think is going to be harder coming out of this is because I could – easily still choose to not do stuff but when the choice is taken away from you when they say no you can't do that 
it's come as quite a relief. And it's made me wonder whether I was really even enjoying the things that I say that I was enjoying. Mm. Well, and I think the, the interesting thing will be, I mean, you're a microcosm of a bigger question because I think there's that story in different ways and on different issues, you know, literally tens of thousands of millions of people the world over. The interesting thing will be, though, what happens when we can return? Will you actually, will you, Will Anderson, as a metaphor for the rest of society, actually learn the lesson and go, oh, maybe I actually like this. Maybe I can take little bits of this with me and, you know, whether that's the challenge of saying no, whether that's the, you know, what processes do you have in place once you haven't got an external stop to kind of go, how am I going to assess whether I get on that plane, whether I do that festival, how many gigs I do, whatever it is, and what's my motivation, you know, is my, do I need the money? Do I need... Uh, the social contact. I was talking to Jackie Cation, who you probably know, American comedian. Very well. And she was absolutely losing her shit, bless her, because, of course, being in the state, she would do one or two gigs a night, you know, and she just could not deal with not having the audience feedback. And she said once she got the Zoom thing going, even if it was only like 100 audience members or something, she could hear them laughing. She's like, now I'm golden. Now I'm fine. And, you know, we can mock that. And I, I, I'm seeing a lot of that in terms of mental health stuff. A lot of kind of, oh, well, you're not a starving kid in Syria. Well, no, of course, that is self-evidently true and you need some perspective. But that doesn't mean this isn't real either. I can tell you as, as a, you know, carer that isolation and uncertainty and loss of income and loss of identity that comes with work. These things are real. They have real mental health effects on people. And we've got to find some way to have perspective, but also not to dismiss those as insignificant. I think that what you've said there is excellent because this is something I've had to pull my friends up on a few times when they, and I think it's a lovely instinct, by the way, to, you know, immediately say, and it's certainly what I first comforted myself with as well, which was, you know, I am in an extremely privileged position. I have a beautiful place to live. If I have to be isolated somewhere, I'm isolated, you know, in the middle of, you know, safety with resources, you know, you know, my financial issues, the issues that will at some stage be able to be resolved. It won't leave me homeless or out on the street. Um, you know, there are some great positives about the experience for me. But there is also, you know, a range of genuine negatives that if they happen to you at any stage in your life other than them happening to everybody else at the same time, everybody would be like, well, that's a terrible thing that you have to deal with right now. And I think that if we pretend that both those things aren't true, yes, I, I think it's a wonderful thing that your first instinct is to think of those who are... Um, less fortunate than you and be grateful for the things that you do have. That's, I think that's wonderful. And I think that's probably a very healthy position to start at. But if that's then used as a way of you ignoring that there are genuinely very real things that you're having to deal with, then 
then you're pro- that's going to be a ticking time bomb for you know problems down the line. It's just going to hit you out of the blue sometimes when you realize you didn't deal with it properly at the time. You you denying your own suffering doesn't help the girl in Syria for a start. No. I mean, let, let's just start there. Um, but also, we know. I mean, you know how how depressing do we want to go? I mean, there's six or seven men killing themselves in Australia every day. You know, so to sort of dismiss. Uh, mental health as something that's insignificant is frankly absurd. I mean, we had during Corona our heater breakdown for obvious reasons because it's been on 24-7 and I uh, had a tradesman come in. Speaking of mental health, I spent the morning going, should I let him in? How far away? You know, do I shake his hand? I'm a talker. It, should I talk to him? I was rude not to. Anyway, that's an aside. That's my own mental health burden. But when he came, he was 2021, 20, something like that. And uh, I asked him how his mental health was going because, you know, I do that kind of thing. And um, it was a really interesting discussion. He said that since the footy had come back on TV, he'd felt a lot better. And that he's one of his friends or a couple of his friends, but one in particular he was really concerned about because this guy had suffered you know, really intense, severe depression his whole life. And in his words, he said he uses the gym as antidepressants and he can't go now. And, of course, me, stupidly, I haven't been to a gym, you know, in 20 years. I'm like, why doesn't he just go for a run? He's like, no, no, he can't do that. He can't do He'll lose weight. It's all about he's got, you know, anyway, that's a bodybuilding kind of thing. But I thought to myself, like, I couldn't give a shit about footy. I certainly couldn't give a shit about going to the gym. But what this guy is talking about is real suffering. And hopefully one of the things that we can get out of all of this is understanding how complex health is. That health is not in these terms just going, will I get the virus? Won't I get the virus? It's what are the other implications? What are the other health conditions? And mental health is fucking real. People got mocked for wanting to go fishing. There was, you know, and... I understood why they had shut down the fishing. It made sense in the same way as I understood why they shut down the golf courses. To me, it made sense. You've got to have these blanket rules and you've got to point out to people that, you know, this was very serious. But at the same time, I had some sympathy because there was a lot of mocking of, oh, well, you can't just like not, you know, not go for a game of golf or you can't not go fishing for, you know, a month. But I think that what we're overlooking in that way is absolutely. There are people who go fishing for their mental health and you know if we're talking about say you know one of the big stats and you know it's a good stat for us to concentrate on because i think it's important you know obviously you know what is it two women dying at the hands of their you know partners in this country per week and and during this time uh of lockdown you know there's a whole bunch of information that will tell you that domestic violence only goes up during these times it certainly doesn't go in the opposite direction so that's been actually one of the arguments that's been used by i think probably cynically by governments and businesses to get people back to work but it has some truth behind it which is the idea of we can't leave necessarily people in these situations we might be making it less safe for them at home and in that same way if that guy who already has a propensity towards that sort of, you know, violence or something has also not been able to go fishing for four hours a day, which is actually how he doesn't deal with that. The, the implications of this infrastructure we have in place. Now, clearly we have to deal with 
the problem itself, you know, the fact that outside, you know, what we're going through, this is, you know, I mean, two people murdered a week. This is one of the major headline issues we should be dealing with regardless. But I have some sympathy then for, well, let's have a genuine look at, is this a worse situation now for a whole bunch of women who are trapped at home with their abusers rather than, you know, being able to get out and about, see their friends, be in a support situation or just have a break from having that person in their face all the time? Oh, I mean, there's nothing, um, as you know, I used to work in family violence before I went into comedy. And one thing is very clear. There's nothing an abuser likes more than isolation. I mean, that is that is the first um, tactic almost of of someone who is abusive in any way is to isolate their victim from friends, family, colleagues, and so on. Um, so you know, this is a perfect storm. And we know, I mean, after bushfires, after Hurricane Katrina, after floods, after all, you know, violence against women escalates. So we know all these things. Uh, we also know, and this taking us back to our previous conversation, part of the, the conversation that's not happening, we know from the research, and this is not, you know, Nellie Thomas comedian having a guess, this is from the research, we know that what underpins that is gender roles, is rigid adherence to gender roles. So like, Will, you have to be like this to be a man. Nellie, you have to be like this to be a woman. That is what underpins it. And that has been reinforced, unfortunately, also in coronavirus. It has disproportionately affected women. The government government response has disproportionately disadvantaged women. So it feels like a leap, but the truth is these things are connected. When we devalue women's contribution and we devalue women's lives, we end up with family violence. So the fact that the the guy can't go fishing is part of the story, but underneath that is the system that tells that guy that he's entitled to control over that woman. So all of these things are true at the same time, and they're all in the pandemic. Will we learn the lesson from it? This is where I get a little bit cynical because I go, well, we cut JobKeeper to childcare workers. Why did we cut job keeper to childcare workers while at the same time we offered a lifeline to the construction industry? One being male dominated, one being female dominated. Do we see the childcare workers as less? We must, mustn't we? Or we'd be helping them too. You know, so I'm, I'm really wavering between hope and despair, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, so many conflicting things. I mean, I guess what we're saying is that life is complicated and when we see it as being black and white, then we're just never going to be able to have decent conversations around things because you could have some people arguing, why are you bringing football back? It sends a bad you know, example to the community that these guys can be you know, tackling each other, whereas we're not meant to be out and about. You know, Why are we focusing on you know, football over these other in- industries that should be focused on? And then you have that guy going, no, this is my mental health outlet. This is the fact that I can sit down. The fact that this club will exist afterwards gives me hope that you know, a society will exist afterwards. In the same way as you're talking about childcare workers in this crisis the one thing the story that i keep hearing from people is how difficult it is to look after their children whether it be to educate them at home whether it is to have them home all the time you'd think in a way 
the like like if if the message you're having is oh my god this is so hard i've been stuck at home with my children and having to do this and i've had no relief and i've not been able to deal with anything surely the next instinctive thought is we should pay teachers more we should pay pay childcare workers more but we don't seem to be connecting those two thoughts well i think we're connecting them unevenly you know, if I right. think again, going back to speaking from my own particular point of view as a as a carer, um, there are you know caring, unpaid caring is female dominated. There's no question about that. Every stat will show you that. And myself and a lot of carers, I think, have been in this weird position through Corona of going, oh, okay, so you lost income, you're stuck at home. You're worried about your health and your kids' health. You don't know when it will end. Like you could literally list everything that's happened during Corona and the same would apply to carers. The difference being no one gave a fuck (laughs) before Corona. And I'm not convinced that after people will realise, government, citizens, whoever will realise this doesn't end for carers when this pandemic goes away. For many carers, this is for life. So as one example, we talked about this in our last chat, the carer's allowance that I'm entitled to is $60 a week, 60 bucks a week. And yet, because we're told there's not enough money, you know, to support carers, coronavirus hits, all of a sudden we find 750 bucks a week for JobKeeper. I don't begrudge that, we need it, this is good. But how come that money wasn't available before? It's... An example of how quickly we can do these things. There was an imperative to get homeless people off the street because obviously people living on the street, you know, means that they're susceptible to the disease and then spreading the disease. And so remarkably, amazingly, they were able to find all these places, you know, for homeless people to be. It shows that we always have the capacity to do these things. And this is the great disgrace about the current world that we live in is that and again, this is just a half thought out theory. It's not, you know, particularly insightful. But one of the things that I've been interested in, you know, during my downtime is the idea of why the resources are so uh, completely uh, in, unequal, unequal in the, their distribution. Because there was an argument perhaps in feudal times that there wasn't enough resources to go around. So those in the top classes, they hoarded the resources and then those down the bottom, they had to live this like, you know, horrible, impoverished life of, you know, of like serving other people. But there wasn't enough resources to go around. Perhaps, perhaps that is true. Perhaps there is historical scholars who will go back and say, no, there's always been an abundance of resources for everybody and people have just hoarded them. But it feels to me that at least at some stage in our evolution there wasn't enough resources and that's why they were you know allocated in different ways but if you look at the planet that we live on right now and the huge wealth that has been accumulated on this planet and the resources that we have to exploit and all these sort of things there is actually enough for everybody so we've decided that not everybody deserves the same amount and the systems by which we've decided who deserves the most and who deserves the least have been really shaken up by the idea of many of the things that were getting paid the most have turned out to be non-essential services in a crisis. I mean, ourselves included. The fact that I've been paid a lot of money to tell dick jokes to strangers for a living, it turns out when the shit goes down, nobody needs some more dick jokes. 
No, no one's sitting around going, let's get all the best comedians together and we'll get them to come up with a perfect routine and then we'll solve this coronavirus. That won't stop us trying, though. That will not stop us trying, to be fair. But you're right. I mean, you know, it's a Tracy Chapman, mate. You know, why do the babies starve? There's enough food to feed the world. Like, it's it's completely trite, but also, you know, hashtag fact. There is, we do not lack we do not like it's how it's distributed. And, you know, I remember the last time we spoke, you asked me about my belief system and I think we, um, we moved on from it. But I think for me, this is a left-wing, right-wing argument and this requires, you know, more explanation. But the basis of, for me of being, of identifying as left-wing, if that's the right way to put it, is that I believe in the community over the individual. So the right wing, the starting premise is individuals look after themselves and that forms happy individuals form a happy community. For me, being left wing means the opposite. It means an individual cannot be happy without a happy community. So if you're starving, I'm also starving. And it's a just, you can end up in some ways, I mean, if you're a centrist, you can end up in a similar place. But knowing what your starting point is, I think, is very important. What we have at the moment is a predominance, I think, of right-wing thinking, um, certainly in the Western world, but in most of the world, the idea that individual responsibility, that phrase that's, you know, trotted out so often, individual responsibility is king. And so I can, I just hoard as much as I can. Well, this is why I think that, you know, uh, the fact that this has coincided with the internet and the individualization of self. I mean, the very technology of the internet has, has be, we've all become our own brands. We've co-opted the language of advertising and we are now not, um, you know, communities where individuals we have a brand everybody has a brand a 15 year old kid on instagram or tiktok has their own brand and they talk they 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 talk about themselves in the language of you know commerciality that that's what it is we're using that very language and so the individual and being an individual and having individual rights is stressed particularly in the greatest example of it which is america which gets us back to that which is you see so many of the issues they're having are people who are saying I won't wear a mask in public. I won't curtail my freedoms because I am an individual and I have the right to do whatever it is that I want to do. Not this idea of we are Americans, the ironically named United States of America, because they are far from being united. In fact, they are completely disjointed and the states themselves don't even really see themselves as states. They see themselves as, you know, places where individuals can uh, you know, promote uh, their individuality as their identity. But also the, I think the, you know, especially through Hollywood, but in general, the American dream slash myth of, you know, the, the, the poor black child rising up and overcoming the system. You know, we love to trot out a Michael Jordan, loved that um, doco, by the way. We love to trot out a, a success story where someone has triumphed over adversity and look, he came from the projects. And, you know, we have a similar mythology here. Of course, what we don't tell as part of that story is that they are the exception. They are the exception to the rule. And when we trot those people out, what we're really saying to everyone who hasn't achieved that is you just didn't try hard enough. You know, if you had tried hard enough, 
you would have been able to achieve his success too, rather than looking at structural barriers, access to education, you know, a whole range of things. Just to put a pin in this though, I have to say, I listened to your Alice Fraser episode and I am so in love with that woman. Oh my God, she's amazing. Um, I just loved her. But one of the things she said was about access to education which I also agree with, and I'm an example of how transformative that can be. But one thing that really concerns me through this pandemic is how stupid educated people are. Like how self, how self-interest will triumph over education and information every time. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a divergent. Give, no, give me, give me an example of what you mean by that. Well, you know, when you see, and again, I mean, it's too easy to blame the internet, but you see so many people, I certainly see in my own circle in, in, in the broadest possible sense at university educated, you know, read books as a shorthand way of describing people um, who are, you know, arguing against lockdowns, for example, or who uh, think that they're fucking epidemiologists or can I really, can't I just have a play date? Can't the kids just have a play date? It's like, do you think the chief medical officer wakes up of a morning and goes, I want to lock Nellie from Reservoir and her kids down? That's what I, it's like. You're using your intellectual um, powers and your intellectual privilege to justify something you want to do. You want to go out. I get it. You want, we all do, but we can't. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, it's that idea that a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And there's a, there's a fine line between somebody who's using their powers of investigation to prove to you that, you know, the, you know, even if there is a vaccine, you shouldn't take it because Bill, Bill Gates is trying to put a chip in you. It feels like that's a ridiculous notion, but it's not too far removed from the people you're talking about no, who have, not. you know, a university arts degree and have read Sapiens who suddenly think that they understand epidemiology. hundred percent and understand, you know, the, the, the flu shot and, you know, all the different things you take into account. Of course, you want to, you know, question power. And we've got to be really careful in times like this to question power. I'm, I'm totally for that. But it's so clear to me that there is um, an element of self-interest and a lack of insight in, in some of the conclusions that come from that, which basically boil down to, but I want to. Yeah, no shit, mate. Like, we get that you want to. I want to as well. But, you know, it's funny, actually. Let me diverge for a second because I was asked the other day about, you know, jokes. Someone had made an offensive joke, which is an interesting topic in itself that you and I have both traversed before. Um, and I think we've got a lot to learn from that discussion in the sense that my view with jokes is pick a group, pick a subject. You know, the most obvious one that we've all been through is rape jokes, which became a big, you know, thing in our industry, whether you're allowed to do rape jokes. The shorthand for me is, would you do that joke with a rape victim sitting in the front row looking you in the face? If the answer's yes, you're either a sociopath or it's a decent joke. If the answer's no, then you know you shouldn't be doing that joke. You know you're punching down. You know you're getting a cheap laugh. 
My answer's the same with the pandemic. These people who kind of go, it's almost like some fucking Darwinian frenzy. Like, well, some people are going to die. Like, that's just, you know, how it is. Let's do the Swedish model and open up. Would you stand in front of the disability community and say that? Would you go into a chemo ward and say that? Would you go into a family like mine with a kid with a chronic illness and say that? If you wouldn't have the balls to stand there and do that face-to-face with people who'll be affected, then you know you're wrong. You're actually speaking from a place of self-interest and not, for want of a better description, righteousness. So, firstly, the the rape joke thing, and because I, it does, I think a lot about comedy, and I think it's important that we do think a lot, a lot about comedy as people who make comedy, and I think it would be an absolute lie to um, say anything other than comedy itself is in a time where there needs to be some ruthless examination of our community, the behaviours in the community, the inclusiveness of the community, you know, and and based on not so much my own observations, but based on that idea that you are hearing all these stories from people about what their terrible experiences have been, and you have to go, well, like, I'll start by with the assumption that, that these these people are all you know acting in good face and telling you know their truth and i'm hearing a lot of these stories so based on that evidence that i'm getting i have to admit that there are things that i have either just not seen because i've surrounded myself with you know people where i won't see that sort of thing or i've chosen to not see you know i've chosen not to be a member of a facebook group or i've chosen not to hang around at certain gigs afterwards where you think oh you might get into those conversations or you know you might be surrounded by those sort of people and so you can do a very good job of just cutting the ugliness out of your own experience but that doesn't actually deal with the ugliness so the rape so the rape joke thing being a, a good example i think because that's one that I can readily point to and identify and say, I know that I was on gigs with people doing those style of jokes. And if I, maybe I didn't like them myself, but I wouldn't have said anything about it to anybody. You know, that idea of freedom of expression and people get to say whatever they want to say. And it just wasn't, I, I didn't feel like it was my place to step in and suddenly moralize about what somebody else was doing on stage. And yet, what you're saying absolutely is true. Would you do it if there was a rape victim in the room? Well, we know statistically there always was. Does it does not matter it does not matter which show you did. If you've ever done a rape joke, there was probably somebody in the audience who had experienced sexual assault and or somebody on the lineup because we know within comedy there's a lot of you know, sometimes what brings people to comedy is the fact that they have been hurt or damaged themselves in some way before they arrived there. So either your team backstage or the people in front of you in the audience, there is somebody in that room who's had that experience. Um, so firstly, there's that. How do you like think about that idea of groupthink? You know, there was a time when everybody had a joke about midgets or dwarfs, right? Like these days you wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't even say those words, you know, on on stage but it wasn't just that people would say the words it was literally that every comedian had some sort of take on a joke that involved those words and there were themes and group think that went around the community and then what happens is once you want to say the thing so it starts with i want to make a rape joke and then they come up with the arguments in the same way as 
you, you as the same way as people say, I want to go outside, and then they collate the argument. So people might have been thinking, how is he going to, how is he going to connect these two points? But I think they actually are connected, which is. The, it did not start with thinking about, is there a person in the audience who has been raped? Therefore, do I want to make this joke? It started with, I want to make this joke. Therefore, I'm now going to justify it through whatever prism I can so I can make the joke. And there's a lot of at the moment, people starting with, this is what I want to be true. And then I will construct arguments around. I don't want to give my little kid a needle. Look look how big the needle is. And like look at the little kid. And I know there's a risk, so now I'm going to go out and I'm going to find and construct a whole bunch of arguments that are going to mean that I can make that decision. But it's starting with the decision, not with the arguments. 100%. It is, they are directly linked. You start with the idea, but I really want to be able to go to the footy or I really want to go and see my nana or I want to have a birthday party or whatever it is. And if you're smart enough, and this is where my faith in the power of education has been... um, you know, shaken, if you're smart enough, you will find an argument. You'll find a rights-based argument even to justify why your self-interest is paramount. And my question is exactly what you've said. Would you go next door knowing that, you know, your neighbour is immunocompromised because they're going through chemo and look them in the face and say, it's more important for me to go to the pub than for you to live. Because that's actually what we're talking about. Just to go back a step as well, because I know you and I love debating jokes and freedom of speech. And, and by the way, can I say, I am not into, the, into banning free speech at all. In fact, I did a whole show about 18C, which is very obscure, but the the Racial Discrimination Act, I'm not into telling people something's illegal because it's offensive at all. But I am into us, particularly as artists, questioning the impact of our words. So have you seen Disclosure on Netflix, which is a sort of trans rights? I I I know what it is, but I haven't had an opportunity to sit down and watch it yet. So one of the great things, so Laverne Cox says pretty much in talking about depictions of of trans people in Hollywood and elsewhere over the years. And, you know, they go through all these depictions and they're all the things that you can imagine, very stereotypical, you know, psycho, all that sort of stuff. She says, I wonder, there's a throwaway line, but the one that stayed with me, she said, I wonder if these people ever considered the trans people in the audience. And to me, that's paramount. Do you consider whatever group you're talking about, if you're going to use a word like dwarf, for example, do you consider the people in the disability community, let alone the short statured community, who are sitting in that audience? Have, has it even occurred to you to think about them? If you've thought about them and you're thoughtful and intelligent and kind-hearted and you still want to do the joke, well, okay, I'm not going to ban you from doing it. But if you haven't even thought about that, then, you know, I can't think of a more stark example of privilege, overused word, but apt here. It's interesting. Tom Ballard said early on when he started doing comedy that uh, one of the things that he's seen of the previous generation, and I hope that it wasn't me, but who knows? It could have been me. That's what the reason that I bring it up, you know, because if it wasn't me in this way, it could have been me in another way. And it certainly informed my thinking 
so much since he said it that every time I'm, you know, about to do a routine that is, and let's be honest, if I'm talking about a social issue, it's usually on behalf of a group that I am not part of because the group that I am part of is, you know, white, straight Australian men. And it's hard to you know, do, do a lot of pro lobbying for, for my side of the, you know, <laughs> Hard to come up there and complain about all the injustices we're facing. So, if I am if I am talking about injustice, and it, I mean uh, that is just a different mindset. If I'm an indigenous person and I'm talking about indigenous justice, injustice, it's coming from a very different place. That where I am talking about indigenous justice, and I have to be aware of that for a start. That you know, this is I am I get the luxury of you know for that routine or that period of time, you know taking part in that debate but as soon as the routine is over and that period of time is over I get to step away from that whereas those who live that experience every day you know they don't get to step away from the fight you know when they feel like it and the second thing is is there any joke in this that while the routine is from the right place actually makes fun of or demonizes the community that I am you know allegedly on the right side of and the one that he pointed to was he said there was a lot of there was a period of time where there was a lot of right on people talking about gay rights who would be doing these routines that were still kind of homophobic (laughs) you know like so the premise would always be you know there should be able be able to be you know i don't know what gay people in the military or whatever i don't know whatever the issue happened to be at the time but then the routine or premise would rely on these stereotypical depictions of what like a gay person would be and he said, you're starting with the right premise, but then the rest of the whole routine actually undermines and undercuts everything that you were trying to say. And I, it's probably one of those things that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be aware how often I think about that when I'm trying to put together a routine and just ch- kind of checking every joke on, is any of this going to undercut the point I'm trying to make? Well, and I think, you know, we overcomplicate it. A, a pretty simple way to do this i mean putting sociopaths aside and god we both know that there's some in our industry so that can actually it can actually be a really good quality to get you to the top in our industry it can be a great quality but most people i think a good rule of thumb very simple rule of thumb is just if you're talking about any group and i don't think there's any subject that you can't joke on at all i think every subject is up um for discussion it's a question of who's the butt of the joke are you punching down you know Think about the person from that group sitting in the front row looking you in the eye. That's a good starting point, surely. I don't care whether you're talking about um, sexual assault, if you're talking about race, if you're talking about disability, whatever it is. Would you do that joke? Would you do that joke about effeminate gay men with Tom Ballard sitting in the front row? Would you do it? Because if there's something in you that goes, well, I probably wouldn't, maybe I'd alter it because he might, then don't do the fucking joke. You know, it's quite simple. I mean, it is quite simple. So it's surprising how often that we don't get it right in a way. And I think that I'm with you still that I do think that there is a place in comedy for shock. And look, some people's acts are, I mean, I the one I bring up quite often is Bill Burr. Like, you know, Bill Burr, 
If I if I wrote down the points he's making, I would disagree with 95% of them. But I think Bill Burr is an excellent comedian. And I think that he is well in charge of what he's doing. And often, you know, the points he makes are actually, he's, he's working on a different level of what he's actually trying to achieve to what he's actually saying. And I think that he does it in a way that's very clever. And, you know, I, I, I really admire but I can imagine there'd be other people who would watch him and, and get a completely different reading from him and just go, well, no. And I think that's still good. It, like you should, Bill Burr shouldn't get shut down because some people take it on face value and others go, no, he's using, you know, these sort of ideas and words to make, you know, different points, I think. Um, I'll give a better example, perhaps from my own life. I used to do a routine about the Cronulla riots and... It was very much, um, a, you know, a routine that was critical of those who caused the Cronulla riots and, you know, really leaning into, um, for people that don't know, uh, there were a race riot on a beach in Cronulla, the suburb where our Prime Minister is the local member of, Scott Morrison, and a predominantly white suburb of Australia. And there, there were Lebanese people going to the beach there and the white guys on the beach decided that uh, they didn't want that and they attacked them with uh, baseball bats and all sorts of things and there was a riot down at the beach and it had been fanned by the right-wing media, in particular Alan Jones well, on, on Talk Radio. Can we point out the connection here as well that Alan Jones being one of, one of the many people and we've got comedians who fall into the same camp who constantly decry being censored from their nationally syndicated radio program. Dude, you're not being fucking censored. We just disagree with you. Like, there's a big difference between censorship and criticism. But yes, continue. Well, so I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's a great point to make because I say this all the time. You get, I get asked in every interview at the moment because of the whole death of the larrikin narrative. You know, political correctness is ruined comedy. And everybody always brings this up. And I say, you can still say whatever you want. Like... I go to comedy clubs and I hear people say whatever they want all the time. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. And you can say whatever you want online and you can say whatever you want in the media. There are just you just can't say whatever you want without there being consequences to what you say or saying whatever you want without some people disagreeing with what you say. That's the difference. I can talk back. So um, I used to have a routine about the Cronulla riots, a very right on, you know, as you would expect routine about the Cronulla riots. But there was one joke in the middle of it uh, that if you just took it, if you didn't watch the rest of the routine and you just took this one joke out of context, you could genuinely get offended by, I believe. So the joke was that, um, so it's in the middle of me doing quite an impassioned, you know, defensive, you know, and, and criticism of what had happened and, you know, defend all on the right side. And, you know, and then I have this very exasperated moment. I go, and they attacked them with baseball bats, because this was just true. They attacked him with baseball bats and yelled, you're un-Australian, you're un-Australian. And the joke was, no, you're un-Australian. And then the audience would start to applaud a little because it was like, oh, look at, you know, like like I was making a TED talk or a speech, right? Like, no, you're the ones who are un-Australian. And then just as I were about to kind of lean into the applause, I would go, Use cricket bats. So, like, cricket bats. Like, it's a good, that's a joke, right? It's like you're taking it to one place. I'm, I'm like, but if you took that one joke of me saying, don't use baseball bats, use cricket bats, it, that joke itself might appear to be on the side of the white guys with the cricket bats, you know? It's a, con- it's a contextual thing. If, if, if I just told that one joke without the rest of the routine where I took them in a direction they weren't meant to be, 
That's context. I wouldn't tell that one joke by itself, but I would tell that one joke as part of a bigger routine where this is this gets even more complicated again. So then we get to the idea of whether we ban things or whether we leave them as historical documents of how times were and how they've changed. And this is such an interesting area now because there are all these you know, turns out, turns out every TV show ever's had a blackface episode. I can't, I was like literally looking through. And I mean, I guess this is the thing you don't notice when you're a white person and you don't see how offensive that is, that like the amount of shows that every second day have to go, yeah, we're pulling out blackface episodes. And you're like, was everybody having a blackface episode apart from us? Like, I mean, I start from the, from the premise and I know it's more complicated than this, but I start from the premise that once you start making rules about banning things, um, it's a bit like call-out culture. You'll feel good. Like, I'll feel good when an episode with blackface is banned. I'll feel good when, you know, there's a really homophobic um, show that's, you know, pulled down or whatever. But the powerful will always use that premise eventually against the less powerful. They will any law... And that's why I was opposed to 18C, which is very obscure, but is about censorship and about censoring, you know, things that are offensive with the right intention, with the right intention of, you know, stopping racial vilification. But as we have seen, exactly what was predicted at that time is happening where powerful groups, like, for example, certain churches, then start to use the premise of that law to say, well, you're offending me. And the most powerful in society are always going to utilise the tools at their disposal, quite frankly, better than the less powerful. So don't give them the power. And that doesn't mean that we can't discuss blackface or we can't discuss a whole range of other offensive and hurtful and hateful depictions of various groups in plays, television, wherever, movies, wherever. But making that... Um, a law or even a cultural rule, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Very uncomfortable with that. It's such a difficult area and I try to listen more than I speak about this. But I am also somebody who's involved, you know, in the industries that have been discussed here. So I think it's worth me examining it from my own point of view and to try to find out what it is I do think about this. And I think genuinely I, I probably have a bit of a foot in both camps in that I think it's great we're not doing this sort of stuff anymore. And I agree that I think it's disgraceful that we were doing it for as long as we were doing it without really thinking about it. I think all that's good. But I don't think that pretending that it never happened is the right way for us to learn the right lessons from it. I get the idea of like going, let's just burn it all and let's like, but I feel in a way, and I know I've used this analogy before and maybe I'm incorrect on this and maybe it's too big a leap, but I, when Scott Morrison got in trouble for talking about there being no history of slavery in Australia and then a whole bunch of people were like, well, you may, maybe in the sense you're thinking of, which is the American cotton field sense, there wasn't, but in so many other ways there have been and here are all the examples of so many of the other ways. And I understand the argument that as Prime Minister of Australia, he has a higher responsibility to understand, you know, the history of the country and what the country is about than I do. But the, I did have a small amount of sympathy for him because about four or five years ago on an episode of The Dollop, I made a joke about 
you know, America's history of Australia versus us not really having slaves. And I had a whole bunch of people at the time, you know, contact me and just say, hey, this is not really right. And here are all these examples of how this is not really right. And I'm not saying that it's good that I didn't know that, as in like that I I take some responsibility for not having learnt that. But there's another part of me that realizes, because I am a curious person, about those sort of things. And once I was told about it, I was curious to learn about it and certainly wouldn't. But I only learned about it through that. I didn't learn about it growing up. I didn't learn about it as part of history at school. And then just in my adult life, because it wasn't something that we talked about, I guess, it wasn't part of the popular cultural narrative, I never learned enough about it. And so... If we erase these things and pretend they never happened, because I feel like that's why we don't talk about the history of slavery in Australia, is we like to pretend that it didn't happen so that we can comfortably move on with the rest of our lives, then I think that we never actually probably reconcile things. And I think there is an analogy there to if we pretend that blackface never happened on television, then how do we tell the story of why we don't do it now? Well, and I think we we start from the premise that the real erasure has been um, the slavery. You know, when we talk about the, right. oh, right. you know, that if we ban the statue, if we tear down the statues or we pull Chris Lilly's episodes or we do whatever, that um, we're somehow erasing history. I think the starting point is, yeah, but history's already been erased because you grew up and I grew up in an Australia where we knew nothing about slavery and the history of slavery that existed here. and Or even blackface. I mean, no one told me that blackface was offensive. How would I possibly know that until I became an adult and and learnt more? I think it's such a complicated area because I can also see, imagine walking down the street as an Aboriginal kid in Melbourne and seeing a statue of someone who enslaved your grandparents. There's not information on that statue saying, oh, this guy did these things, but he also did these things. So it's kind of ironic that we even talk about erasure because the erasure's already happened. It's not on the plaque that, you know, the the horrors of colonisation aren't on the plaque. Um, what the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, it's a central activist question, really. I think, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people who would consider themselves in whatever way activist is a broad term and activists have to grapple with this. There are, there's no easy answers. Um, one premise, like if I talk from the point of view of all the work I've done in family violence, which is a very similarly contested area. One thing I would say is I start from the premise that none of us is perfect as tried as that sounds, you know, if I'm in a room of 500 people and I'm doing a fucking keynote presentation on family violence, literally say to people, is there anyone in this room who's never said or done anything homophobic, racist, misogynist, sexist, ableist, whatever category, there is no one in that room. So let's start from the premise of, of human frailty and honesty None of us is perfect. If I think of the family violence area, for example, I am still asked questions and anyone who works in this area will be rolling their eyes. You know, you still get those questions. Why doesn't she leave? 
or why did she choose that kind of man? Or what about men? What about the violence against men? And I can tell you after answering those questions for, you know, 25 years, my instinct is to go, oh, for fuck's sake, would you read a book? But I also recognize from an activist point of view, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Because if you want to be effective, unless that person is is really not trying to engage and they're just being an asshole and you get those as well, but there's a lot of people in the middle who just don't know the answer. They actually don't understand why doesn't she leave or what about men or whatever. So just answer the question. And that's easy to say. Like I know it's exhausting, you know, having been um, a very good friend of, of Stella Young who was a, uh, you know, prominent disability activist. I mean, I would be out with Stella and she would get asked constantly to talk about disability. Kurt Fernley talked about the same thing when he talked to you. It's exhausting. But I think oh, part of me just goes, there's just no way around it. I mean, you need to take breaks from it and be in safe spaces where you're not questioned constantly. But I think the idea of reacting uh, with anger and certainly with the sort of cancellation culture sort of vibe, I just don't know what it achieves. Well, so that's the problem, I think, and I understand the impulse behind it, of course, but I think that what you've identified also is the idea that if we just immediately cancel people with no hope of redemption, which is not what is always the case, by the way, you know, at, at, at its extreme, right? You're done, who's next, without there being any way back. What it tends to do is then create a, another subset of people who are now, they're not cancelled, they're just somewhere else, you know, in a place where they don't even have an incentive to yeah, act in a way that is in the benefit of the rest of society now. Whereas if you offer people a path to redemption or a way forward, or I think when it comes to things like, you know, family violence and when it comes to things like rape and, you know, I think the Me Too movement, part of the complicity of silence of men, you know, myself included, I think every, all men, you know, like it's been a really confronting thing for people to go back and examine their worlds through the eyes of, of other people and see how much of it's just set up for you to ignore if you want to ignore it, you know, if you're not the person who's being persecuted by it. So then I think a lot of the reticence for change, because it's this idea of, I don't blame somebody for not knowing something. There's a lot more blame of once you're told, then not changing your behavior, right? Once you know and then you still continue to do that, then it's a different thing. If you didn't know, if you didn't understand, I have a lot more sympathy for people in those circumstances. And like you said, staring at that room full of people, there's everyone in that room's made a mistake. So if you're precluded from not wanting to be racist by the fact that at some stage in your life you're told a racist joke or not wanting to be sexist by the idea that at some stage in your life you were sexist, then unfortunately those people just become those people who are like, well, I want to be racist and sexist because I don't want to be, you know, it's okay to be racist and sexist because if I don't claim it's okay to be racist and sexist, I have to deal with the fact that I have said things and done things. And then, and you know, as a comedian, as a person who says things and does things, it's something that, you know, I wrestle with constantly, which is this idea of reconciling things that you've said before, why you wouldn't say them now, how they change. And it can be extremely difficult. 
you know, to reconcile. But I think if we get to the point where we start just saying, no, it's black and white and we're going to cancel something for not knowing something that I only learned three weeks ago myself, then we're in a pretty dangerous place. I think that the idea that we can say, this is no longer appropriate, but here's a way forward out of this. And, you know, I also have come on this way forward. I'm not going to judge Scott Morrison for not knowing about slavery. Well, I probably will for because he has a higher standard. He has a higher standard and he shouldn't be speaking as prime minister about something that he clearly doesn't have that knowledge about. But but I get that I only learnt that myself a few years ago too. So I'm not going to get up on some high horse and pretend I've known it forever because I didn't know it forever either. Mm. I just think we, there has to be some room for, for redemption and change. So if I go, I mean, putting the Prime Minister aside, because I think that is a different standard, and I also think he's an example of someone who's given information and then just refuses to accept it. So he just doesn't like the answer, that thing we talked about before. No, no, this did actually happen, Scott. So until there's truth, there will be no healing. There will be no reconciliation. Yes, and you can certainly judge him for, if you genuinely didn't know, for him, to, he should have just come out the next day and gone, this is a, yeah, this, I would have loved if he'd just gone, I, this is a fucking disgrace. I've been told all this time that this happened and then suddenly I didn't know and I look at this and I do a press conference the next day and go, we're going to fucking, this is going to be the number one thing kids are taught on every curriculum. I am so embarrassed that I got up here yesterday and said this now that I have this information because they're the things I'm thinking. I'm embarrassed that I made that joke. I'm embarrassed that I, I went away and learnt more about it and now have a great understanding of the various levels of you know, slavery that were in Australian society and you could argue still exist in Australian society. So um, I did the work. So we can give him a high, yeah, he, he shouldn't be held to a, uh, he should be held to a higher standard than me with my dick jokes. So, yes, you can judge him for that, definitely. But also it's the amount of attention. Again, I keep obsessively talking about your Kurt Fernley episode, but... Um, one thing that really resonated with me that he said was about basically what's your bang for your buck. So you've only got so much time and energy, intellectual and emotional, what are you going to do with it? Do I want to go back to a joke that Will Anderson made in 1998 that I would consider misogynist and go, that's what you are now. You are that even in 2020. I don't want to hear from you anymore. You're not someone who's on my team. Or do I want to go, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, is denying the existence of slavery. I think I'll put my time and energy into that. Do I also want to allow, and I'm not talking about a joke of yours, for example, by the way, I'm just, I'm just saying you, you being a possible example. Do I want to allow the possibility that Will might have made a joke when he was 20 years old that he's not proud of when he's 45 years old, that he wouldn't do at this age. In other words, can I allow the possibility that he's changed? Because quite frankly, if I can't allow that possibility, what are we all doing? If we can't accept that people can change, there is no point to activism. We just throw our hands up in cynical despair and say, I'm done. I mean, there is a bit, so to use just comedy as our baseline for this, because it's just an easy thing for us to talk about. Yes, this person made this blackface thing 15 years ago. And in the 15 years since, they have never done anything like that again. Let's, let's, let's consider the, popular, the possibility 
that they themselves have decided that. And it's why Charlie and I with TOEFOP, we just did 10 years of TOEFOP. And our early episodes were, you know, it was when podcasts were new and they were mostly sort of, you know, like dirty secret conversation style podcasts. That was really, you know, Kevin Smith's Smogcast and a whole bunch of ones that we loved. And so very much our early episodes are conversations along that vein. And we wrestled over the years with, should we just take down the older episodes, you know, now that we're not doing that sort of stuff on the podcast. And instead, what we do is we talk regularly, you know, every second week, probably we reference the idea of at least not starting with the old episodes, you know, but, but we talk a lot about why it is that we don't say things that we, you know, thought were acceptable to say back then. And I, my personal, and maybe this is self-justification, but my personal attitude to that is that you get to see people grow. And it's important to go, oh, these people who now, you know, have landed at this place, they didn't, they weren't born, you know, with all these right on ideas and good ways of looking at the world. They have struggled with them and developed them and changed the language they use and changed the way they speak about things. And now they speak about different things in different ways and they explore topics in different ways. And you can see people who've generally looked at their work and tried to grow through their work. And I think that idea of how far you go back, I mean, are you going to go back and suddenly find examples? I mean, you can't like, and this is not to, it was only because this person's name came up and I I hesitate even to use it because I don't want to like put her in. Like, I mean, there's some, some of Magda Zabanski's previous work that got mentioned, you know, in a whole bunch of look at this example of, and, there's no one who is a more passionate humanitarian than Magda and but she wouldn't start with the premise that she started perfect or that her ideas haven't developed over the years but you can clearly say they have you can clearly see the timeline in you know her discovery as a performer and a comedian and a social activist and you know using her voice like it's only really been in the last sort of five years that she's gone from somebody that you did not know anything about to somebody that you now see on the front line putting her you know personal fame and notoriety on the line for other people to know that this is somebody who's clearly been on a massive journey in their life from where they were to where they are now and I think that Taking into some consideration, is this a pattern or is this something that somebody has learnt from and grown from? And then to then try to give that kindness to people who are doing bad shit now. Like, are you doing bad shit now and then you realise it's bad and you are going to go on a genuine process to rehabilitate and learn better things and reestablish trust? Then I think that's something that if we don't allow people a path to redemption and that's not to say you get a free kick or that, you know, you don't have to take responsibility for what you've said or what you've done. Like it's got to be a a sort of genuine reckoning with who you are and what you've done and what you think. Um, But we have to allow that, or there is literally no point in social change in trying for social and political change. And I think when you, when I, I don't know about you, but when I look around the world at the moment, I think, we need all the bloody good people we can get, you know, if someone is prepared to do that kind of deep reckoning, myself included. Like I don't hold myself separate to this conversation. I'm part of this conversation. I've made mistakes too. If we can't all do that kind of reckoning with ourselves, we can't just be, you know, quote unquote, cancelling each other because there's just not enough of us who are prepared to do this work. And you've got to do the work on, I mean, I think of it mostly from a personal 
point of view because I think if I can't reckon with these things myself, then how could I ever reckon with them on a bigger scale? Like I have to, you know, be ruthless in my self-examination and I have to be ruthless in the idea of reckoning with things not just when you're caught Yes, exactly. Right? Okay, so this is where this is where it gets hard. Looking at yourself, yeah, going. No one else knows about this time that I, you know, cheated in whatever sense that means. Like, but I know. And is this something that I am happy to have got away with and glad that nobody knows about, or is this something that, regardless of anybody else knowing about it, that I'm disappointed in? how I've behaved myself and I have to, you know, have a ruthless assessment of, you know, why I've like, you know, why I've disappointed myself and how I'm going to improve on myself from from that moment. Look, I think it's, um, you know, if, if you and I were basically the same age, if there had been social media when I was a teenager, you would be able to look back at posts. I would have done posts about abortion being murder as one example. And I reckon... I mean, you know, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm a relatively well-known feminist. I absolutely would go to prison for a woman's right to choose. I would lay down on the fucking tracks for it at 46 years old. But at that stage, that's that's all I knew. I didn't know better. I, no one had exposed me to any other kind of ideas. And you could take almost any subject and and apply that. I thank goodness that there's not a public record of all the things that I've thought and said and done uh, uh, over my time. So I always keep that in mind when I, to go back to the family violence example, which is the one that I can speak of most authoritatively, you know, if you said to me um, something as simple as why doesn't she leave, I try and just answer it. You know, and I try and allow the possibility that you may not be on the same place uh, of that journey of understanding and discovery and information and had access to the ideas that I've had. And we just start from there. Like we've just got to try and come together in some way. And that doesn't mean we don't get held accountable. That doesn't mean, like you said, it's not a free kick and you don't get to just kind of get on the radio and say, oh, I'm really sorry if I've offended you and, you know, not be sincere about it. But if people, we've got to allow the possibility that someone might have changed and that they might know better now. <sighs> it's, a, it's a difficult, I know, I know, but I, I, but I don't know how we're going. I I, there's so there's so much a part of me that you talk about community you talk about the idea of what's really important um socialized medicine was something that you started talking about and i think you know let's come back to it to finish up because i i i'm i still have i had a three-year work visa to the u.s so i've spent you know five of the last 10 years you know six months a year in the u.s working and i hadn't been back for a couple of years for for a couple of reasons but i had planned to go back last year and 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 then when last year didn't happen i definitely planned to go back this year and now i probably won't go back at all at least for for a long time and part of that is because we won't be allowed to but another part of that is very simple the minute that that virus broke out in America and Australia. And at the time, we didn't know that Australia and America were going to have such completely different experiences of it. I would have got on a plane from America and I would have come back to Australia. 
because the thing that would have brought me back would have been if I get sick, we don't know who's going to get sick from this. If I get sick, would I rather be sick in America or would I rather be sick in Australia? And I knew that getting on a plane would cost me less than my first doctor's appointment would cost me in America. You know, it would be cheaper for me to fly halfway around the world and go to a hospital in Australia than it would be for me to go to a hospital in America. And I think that that comes out of community. We do have an inbuilt sense of community in this country. And when I'm in communities, now living in the country, you're back in a community. The thing that one of the things that we've um, been amazed by, and we shouldn't really be, but is suddenly when you're in a smaller community, the level of service that we have got from tradespeople, you know, the, the plumber who had to come out, the mechanic that we had to go and use, those necessary people that we needed to go to, has been so much better than any experience that we've ever had in the city. And part of that is obviously the times we're in, people are grateful for business going on and there is that extra level of connection to when you go to the local restaurant and get takeaway, you're not just getting takeaway, you're supporting a local business and their family and all those sort of things to survive through a really terrible time. And I think there is more connection between you understanding what your role for that restaurant is and the restaurant having an understanding of who their customers are and the customers are the fact that their family can, you know, still afford to eat themselves and all those sort of things. So there's that immediate connection. But I think that there's that other connection, which is if Gary, the mechanic is no good, he's, you know, there's only two mechanics in the community and everybody goes to, you know, either Gary or the other guy, Gary needs to be good. Gary needs, you know, to be when you run into someone at the shops, they go, oh yeah, I go to Gary too. Like he does a really fantastic job. That's what one of the great advantages of a community is. Going to the local shop, which is also the post office where, you know, they, they, they've got the old fashioned, you know, post boxes behind them and they give you your milk and your bread and they lead over and they give you your mail, but they all know you and they know what's going on. And we already know a lot of what's going on in their worlds and their connection to community. And you would want any of those people if they got sick to have a hospital bed? Do you want any of those people if they can't work to be able to get government support during these times? So we, we care. People care. Like in its very essence, I think in a general sense, most people actually do care. And if you meet most people one-on-one, they are good people. Most, you know, like, I mean, I know in, there's always exceptions to every rule, but I I can't help but think that the major thing that's standing in all of our way is systematic. And this is why systems matter. It's very easy to do what I'm doing right now, which is to, in some ways, pretend you're not part of a system, you know, like being drop out of the system. That's that's kind of how you frame it in your head. But that is an, also an abdicating of responsibility because it's very easy to opt out of the system if you're comfortable without the system. Whereas for most people, they don't choose to opt out of the system. They The system doesn't have a place for them. And it's why we need to keep lobbying for these things that we intrinsically believe that our fellow people should have access to health care and safety and all these basic roof over their head these basic human needs we still need the big system in the middle of it government policy legislation all those sort of things to reflect that because 
at the end of the day, it's the system that delivers on the things that we actually believe in. Does that does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the that's the very um, reasonable criticism and one of the the moments of reckoning from Black Lives Matter um, movement is that it's. It's very easy for, um, you know, those of us who are white to kind of go, um, oh, it's all a bit too hard, so I'll just step out because someone might tell me off for saying the wrong thing and that hurts my feelings. Or maybe even worse, I'll come in and tell you all what's supposed to happen here Meanwhile, there's no discussion. You know, I'll, I'll lead the discussion on blackface in comedy, for example. Meanwhile, where's the discussion about the systematic and systemic, like, abuses and the, the racism that is intrinsic in all the systems that we benefit from? And that's, that's where it gets hard. And it's also an argument for the fact that sometimes these things are distracting. You know, the Black, the black Lives Matter protests weren't about you know, whether Chicos are called Chicos. Like, I don't think it's a problem that they're changing them. You know, I think that's absolutely fine. But we can, I mean, and we've done it here today and it makes sense, comedians, it's a lot closer to where we are. But black-facing comedy is a massive distraction for what those protests were really about, both in America and here in Australia, which is the incredibly... You know, the fact that Indigenous people have a 20-year less lifespan than, you know, the the rest of the population that are disproportionately incarcerated, that the entire system is set up to, you know, disproportionately disadvantage them. And we've got no real game plan to move forward at the moment. They are the actual issues. And the fact that, you know, we're doing this for two minutes here at the end as opposed to while we spoke about, you know, blackface and comedy for 40 minutes is also probably part of the problem, that these things the less important things become the distraction rather than the main things we should be speaking about. You know, it's part of the problem, but I think part of the issue is people staying in their lane too. And what you and I know is culture. You know, neither of you or I don't know how to run the police force, for example. I recognise that that's a much bigger issue than blackface in a comedy show, um, but I can't speak with expertise from the, I have not been on the receiving end of police violence. I've not been a police officer. I don't understand how those systems work. So I'm also conscious, really deliberately self-conscious about weighing into areas and just having an opinion because I want to have an opinion. I don't fucking know. You know, I'm, I'm happy to learn and I'm trying to learn, but do I speak on those things um, when I've got half an idea? Yeah, I think we'd be a lot better off if people, instead of immediately telling you what they thought, actually said, I don't know, tell me more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I leave you on a um, on a bit? Because part of the, I think, what's happening in this moment, and it all ties into all the subjects that we've been talking about, is that there's, there is a tendency for people to feel like they just want to drop out you know, that it's all a bit too hard and maybe Corona has um, facilitated that to some degree, but like I'm just better off not getting involved. Um, Give you a a beautiful little story. I was watching, (laughs) this tells you more about me than it should. Uh, I was watching America's Got Talent with uh, my youngest Mm. daughter, right? So in isolation, desperate times, well, desperate times. So we're watching America's Got Talent, which I'm actually really enjoying. And this woman comes out on stage 
very, you know, in old language, in the language that you and I would have grown up with, very butch, very butch lesbian, walks out on stage and she's there with her dad and her dad's like so proud of her and her dad's, you know, she says to camera, my dad's been with me through everything. And, of course, we all know, reading between the lines, we understand what she's talking about. And she comes out on stage and she sings, she starts singing, and my little daughter, my youngest daughter is very non-gender conforming for want of a better description. And she said, she looks like me. And I'm thinking to myself, well, other than the fact that she's black and 35, she absolutely does. (laughs) You're cool. And she sings this beautiful song. And then Simon Cowell, speaking of, you know, potential redemption stories, he comes to his turn and she gets four yeses. And he says to her, my only advice to you is don't let a stylist anywhere near you. You look exactly how you're supposed to look. You're fantastic. Just continue being you. Now, I understand we can all critique the music industry. We can talk about Simon Cowell. But I thought my daughter is watching this, something that she would never have been exposed to. You or I would never have been exposed to at that age. And that matters. Like that actually does matter. And it's too, I think cynicism, extreme cynicism is a cop-out. You know, we can't go so far that we give up and just say nothing's changing, you know, it's all too slow, there's no hope. The only people who can do that are those for whom the system's already working. Okay. Well, um, let's uh, finish. Uh, Let's see if we've recorded this and um, uh, we can put all this up properly. But this has been great fun. Thank you. We literally, for people who, so anyway, we we, we were having... we were having a technology thing and then we were going to postpone and then I said, well, let's just have a catch up seeing we're already on the Zoom and now hopefully we've recorded all this for people at home, I hope. So, thank, thank you. All right, I've got to run. Jeez, we went a while, didn't yeah. we? No, no, go. go. Yeah, okay. we did. Hey, so, yeah, I've got to do another one now. Too. Lovely. So, yeah, bye.